Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series is targeted towards both patients and healthcare professionals, and you'll see why as we go through this conversation. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Basil Kawash to today's episode. Dr. Kawash is an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Dr. Kawash has several academic interests, including quality improvement as well as asthma. He is the current chair of the Academy's Sports, Exercise, and Fitness Committee and a co-author on the recent work group report surrounding recommendations for physical activity and asthma, which is actually the topic for our next podcast episode, so stay tuned for that. Today, however, Dr. Kawash is going to help us better understand the current albuterol shortage. And with that, Dr. Kawash, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dave. I'm a longtime listener. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, you know what? I, I suppose we should just let everybody know you are officially the first former fellow that I, that I helped train to be a, a guest on the podcast. So this is exciting for me. And uh, I'm sure that you know, our, uh, our, uh, we've known each other for a long time. I'm sure that it will come out during today's conversation. But thanks for doing this. No, thank you. And it sounds like you've been preparing me for this day for years. So it's uh, an honor to finally be here. Yeah, well, don't blow it. I mean, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, before we discuss some of the specifics pertaining to the albuterol shortage, perhaps we can start by just having you describe, you know, what albuterol does inside the body and what conditions is typically used to treat. Absolutely. So what albuterol does is it's a basically it's a sympathetic activator. So it activates the fight or flight nervous system. Specifically, the goal is to do that within the lung and open up the airways. So the, uh, the beta-2 adrenergic receptors, not to get too technical, but these are the sympathetic receptors that live inside the lungs on the smooth muscle of the airways. And by hitting those receptors, what the albuterol does is it keeps those airways open. And uh, as long as the drug is active, that is essentially the goal of it, is to open up the airways, allow more air movement from the outside air into the person's lungs. Uh, and allow that air and gas exchange. So that's going to work really well in conditions that involve closed off airways, where you really want to try to reverse that by opening up the airways. So asthma, COPD, other lung diseases, cystic fibrosis, and then sometimes like wheezing episodes or viral illnesses, especially in kids, you can use albuterol. So really, we're dealing with deep inside the lungs and those lower airways. Is this something that works pretty fast? Or does it you know take hours and hours before people start to feel benefit from it? It tends to work pretty fast. I mean, we're talking about an inhaled form of a medication, right? This is something that is getting breathed into the lung. It's going to immediately or relatively quickly get deposited in the part of the body where it's supposed to be active. It's not like you have to go through like an absorption process or anything like that through the gut. So the goal is quick acting, and then it doesn't necessarily last as long as some other inhalers. It's relatively short lasting uh, up to a couple hours, but um, it is a quick acting medication. 
Yeah, and as, as we're going to discuss, that's why it's so important uh, for uh, for it to be available. And, you know, I, I think the, the first time we heard about the albuterol shortage was in the autumn of 2022, uh, but now it's made recent headlines again. Can you give us some background regarding the initial FDA report from October of last year, and then really what's changed since then? Yeah, definitely. So the FDA in October of 2022 reported that albuterol was on the shortage list, but the story actually goes back a little bit further than that in uh, back to, I think, April of 2020 was when this company, Acorn Pharmaceuticals, which is one of the, the two manufacturers of liquid albuterol, started to talk about bankruptcy and bankruptcy proceedings. I don't want to get too much into that, but essentially people knew that there was a possibility of an albuterol shortage on the horizon even at that time. And then it became more of a reality uh, this past fall in October of 2022. And since then, of course, we've also had this new term triple-demic that we heard all about throughout the winter with the combination of COVID and RSV and flu circulating. And that used up a lot of albuterol resources because of how many people were getting sick with these viruses and needing more albuterol. And unfortunately, in February, that same company that was kind of teetering on the brink of bankruptcy for a couple of years, ultimately filed for complete bankruptcy uh, last month in February. So they shut down multiple manufacturing plants that were making this liquid albuterol. So that has really accelerated this whole crisis that we have right now of uh, this um, nationwide albuterol shortage. Now, that's great background. And, you know, in, in my experience, typically by the time we see something hit the, the national media headlines, that means it's been going on for weeks or months. And that's exactly what you described. Uh, I, it also sounds like you're really describing a shortage of the liquid albuterol, which is mainly used in nebulizers. So does this mean that this is really just a problem for the emergency department and, in, and inpatient care areas inside hospitals? Or are we seeing a broader impact? Yeah, for now, it's mostly a problem, like you said, in those areas. Of course, Whenever you create a shortage of one type of albuterol, it's going to create pressure eventually, we think, on other formulations of albuterol too. But the liquid albuterol is the main issue right now. That And that's, those are common places where you'll find liquid albuterol used in the nebulizer. So the emergency department, the ICUs, a lot of ICU patients are on ventilators and therefore they can't use any type of inhale, uh, albuterol inhaler and the liquid albuterol becomes the more reasonable option in those situations, or, you know, the only option in those situations. Um, so I think that's where we're going to see some impact and hopefully nothing very, very serious anytime soon. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are also outpatient patients with asthma, patients with COPD that use liquid albuterol and nebulizers that they have at home, and this affects them as well. Well, you already mentioned inhalers. So do those patients that, you know, use this liquid form of albuterol and their nebulizers at home, do they need to receive it that way? Or are there other forms that they can also receive? You know, it really depends. We think that most of them probably don't need to receive it that way. So the albuterol inhalers work really well uh, at delivering albuterol deeper into the lungs, and they don't require you to have this clunky nebulizer type of equipment. You can just have an albuterol inhaler in your pocket maybe use it with or without a spacer, depending on the formulation of it. And you just pull in the uh, albuterol, the aerosolized medication deep into the lungs. And that's a, in many cases, probably in most cases, a better option than having the nebulizer. Of course, there are going to be some patients that either have a personal preference for the nebulizer, or occasionally you get patients that really need the nebulizer because they can't use the albuterol inhaler either they don't have the ability to pull the medicine deep into their lungs or they have some other uh, mechanical limitation. You know, we're talking now about like 
severe COVD patients uh, that don't have the ability to take that full forceful deep breath to deliver the medication to their lungs. Or I had one patient in fellowship who had um, multiple, um, who had uh, muscular dystrophy. It took me a second mm-hmm. to think of the, the, um, the condition, but he had muscular dystrophy and therefore he essentially needed the uh, aeros- or the, the nebulized form of the albuterol to deliver the medication deeper into the lungs because he wasn't able to generate that force himself. But you know, outside of those rarer conditions, most people can get away with just using the albuterol inhaler. No, I appreciate you mentioning that. I, I hadn't actually thought of that, of um, just the, the inability to physically get the medicine in the lungs without a nebulizer. Well, what about you know the evidence? Does it demonstrate any benefit uh, from a nebulizer compared to an, uh, an inhaler or vice versa? What do the studies actually show? It's interesting because I mentioned that some patients prefer the nebulizer or think that the nebulizer works better, but the studies actually show based on meta-analyses that have been done some of them decades ago, that if anything, the albuterol inhalers, if you use them properly, tend to work better than the nebulizer as far as delivering the medication properly and um, reducing both adverse effects and leading to better asthma outcomes. So um, the inhaler, the spacer, really it's a, in my opinion, the first line option for most patients with um, asthma as a rescue medication. Yeah. And I mean, they're obviously a lot easier to use as well. But like you said, I, I, I hear from a lot of parents and patients, they just tell me they get better relief from their asthma symptoms if they use their nebulizer as opposed to their inhaler. But as you mentioned, inhalers are actually superior in many ways. So what are some things that patients can do to maximize the benefit of getting albuterol through their inhalers? So I think technique is really, really important here. I mean, there's that now famous scene from the show House. I don't know if you remember this. You can find it mm-hmm. on YouTube where... <laughs> He asked the girl to demonstrate her inhaler technique uh, to see whether she's using her albuterol properly. And she responds by puffing it on her neck like it's a fragrance. <laughs> um, you know, this is a scene that a lot of people in medicine are, are familiar with, just as illustrative of gaps in health literacy that we might need to address. But I think assessing proper inhaler technique, that's something that's really, really important. Showing somebody how to use an inhaler, if it's recommended that the inhaler be used with a spacer, showing them how to use the spacer also. Sometimes if somebody is finding that it's not working, it's not necessarily because the medicine literally doesn't work for them. It might be because it's just they haven't figured out quite how to use it properly. And we have a role to play in educating on them, them on that. Excuse me. Yeah. Is that something that you routinely do with your patients uh, during their, their follow-up visits or when you first diagnose them with asthma? Is that something that you know should happen in the office setting or you know, tell us a little bit more about that? It absolutely should happen in the office setting. It's not something that I routinely do if the patient's asthma is well-controlled. Of course, if the patient's asthma is not well-controlled or if they're giving me feedback, like you said earlier, about how they're using the medication and they don't feel like it's working, then it's time to reevaluate that technique and make sure that the technique is, ac- is adequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned um, something called a spacer. So do all albuterol inhalers work through the same mechanism? And if not, how do they differ? Like do some, you know, you have to use a spacer with them and if so, why? And others that you don't tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, such a great question. And it's a good point. So it really depends on the mechanism or the design of the inhaler. There are some that are dry powder inhalers that don't require the use of a spacer or, or that uh, really should not be used with a spacer, I should say, because they deliver the powdered albuterol in this small form into the deeper airways. But there are others that are pressurized inhalers that because of the mechanism of the, uh, the inhaler itself, it, it basically pushes out this puff of aerosolized medication. 
And if you use it without a spacer, you're not getting the full benefit of breathing in the, the, the medication itself. You're actually getting quite a lot of that pressurized component of it, that, uh, that chemical that can be pressurized. And therefore you're uh, with that, with the use of a spacer, you can actually pull more of the medicated portion of the albuterol canister deeper into the lung. Yeah, and you mentioned that famous scene from the the television series House, but there's this, the famous uh, pictograph that we all know of. You know, people you know, when they radio label the medicine from inhalers, uh, mm -hmm. where if you don't use the spacer, most of it ends up in your esophagus, your stomach. Whereas if you do use the spacer, most of it ends up in your lungs, where we design it to go. So yeah, I think that's a yeah. great explanation of it. And I've shown that pictograph to family members of mine before to try and get them to use spacers. It's it's uh, it's really great as like a visual tool, like, hey, like this is the actual observed difference that you can see it. And just having that in a visual form really can convince a lot of people. No, absolutely. Uh, so I'm hearing you describe, um, you know, the last several minutes, you, you've given us a, a great explanation of why anybody who relies on a nebulizer for their albuterol, and especially if they're affected by the shortage, that they should definitely contact their personal doctor to discuss switching to an inhaler. Um, so along those lines, do we know if this shortage has, has impacted the availability of inhalers as well at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, at this point, I don't think it has. But again, in theory, eventually, if we put enough pressure on the liquid albuterol form, then yeah, we're, we're going to see some shortages on the inhaler as well. And maybe some people who were using liquid albuterol in a nebulizer that hadn't been switched over to an albuterol inhaler, maybe now with the pressure to switch over to the albuterol inhaler form, that's also going to create a shortage of albuterol inhalers. Right now, again, we, we haven't seen that. Hopefully, the manufacturers of the albuterol inhalers can are, are prepared for that and can catch up to the demand that's going to increase because of that. But um, it's definitely something that is a an area that we should keep an eye on, and mm -hmm. we will have to wait and see. But we need to be mindful of it. You know, situations such as this um, tend to induce you know some panic and, and fear among those who rely on medications like you know such as albuterol. You mentioned before why it's important for those with asthma and COPD. And you know, just a few years ago at the start of the pandemic, we saw people hoarding toilet paper. Mm -hmm. uh, so along those lines, should people start hoarding albuterol inhalers in case they really do become scarce? And how long should one inhaler typically last? I definitely would not recommend that anybody hoard an albuterol inhaler because that's just going to create the problem worse for everybody else, of course. And Really, we got to remember that albuterol is a rescue medication. It's not like something that needs to be strictly avoided. It's not dangerous, but it is not a medication that somebody should be dependent on for their asthma control. That's probably a separate point that I know we're going to address at some point in this conversation. But uh, we need to emphasize that on one albuterol inhaler, you should first probably should not be using it every single day, and therefore it should last you several months. I usually tell people this albuterol inhaler should last you a minimum of three months, probably even longer. There is some controversy around whether you can extend the life of an albuterol inhaler past the expiration date. Some people say you can, and you probably can by a little bit, but um, you know, it, a lot of that depends on how well you've stored the albuterol inhaler, whether you're storing it at the right temperature, whether you've exposed it to the elements too much, and also how long past the expiration date we're talking. I mean, a couple weeks, probably not a big deal, but six months, eight months, you're probably looking at a, a much less effective albuterol inhaler than you would have had before. Mm -hmm. um, my hope is that really the supply is going to resolve itself to a point where we, we don't have to keep having this conversation about extending the life of the albuterol inhaler and certainly about hoarding it. So I would not recommend that anybody start loading up on their albuterol inhalers and keep them um, somewhere in their house. 
No, I think that's great advice, and I agree. We don't want to. We certainly don't want to limit uh, the availability for those who need it uh, as people stockpile. Or do some of the inhalers actually have like um, counters on them so people can tell how many puffs are left? Yeah, they do. I think most of them these days have a counter. So some of them will start at say 200 or 120 puffs, and you can see based on the number of puffs that are uh, that you've used um, how much is left of that supply. Um, one. Other topic we didn't talk about quite yet is the pre-medication with albuterol for exercise, which a lot mm -hmm. of our asthma patients do. Mm -hmm. So you can conceive of a scenario where somebody who's exercising quite a lot and needs their albuterol inhaler on a daily basis. We don't we don't necessarily count that towards their uh, asthma use frequency. So we don't hold it against them that they're using it before exercise. So those patients might want to be using their uh, albuterol inhaler more frequently and therefore tracking it uh, by the number of puffs that are labeled on the albuterol canister, which is pretty easily legible. Yeah, I, I, I'm really glad you mentioned that. And I think it's important for anybody listening to understand by no means are we or anybody else suggesting that you not use your albuterol as you mm -hmm. normally would. Um, by all means, we want you to use your albuterol, especially if you use it prior to exercise, if you need it as a quick reliever. Um, what we're talking about here more is more of a, a broader impact of, of what this looks like. So yeah, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah. And the nice thing about tracking the numbers is also once you get down to a certain point, let's say it's 30 or 40, depending on how often you're actually using the albuterol inhaler, then you start to think, okay, it's time to get a new one and, and reload. It's not necessarily time to stock up on four or five or, or 10 albuterol inhalers and, you know, keep them all in my drawer locked up. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Let's go back to what you touched upon just a few minutes ago. So what if somebody has been using their albuterol more frequently or recently experienced an exacerbation because they're, they're having more symptoms? Are there other ways to better control their asthma that don't include albuterol? Yeah, definitely. And we often use that as a surrogate. I don't know about you, but I often use that as a, a sign that my patient's asthma is not that well controlled. If they're saying, I'm using my albuterol four or five days a week, and it's not because I'm exercising four or five days a week, it's because I'm finding myself out of breath or I'm, you know, waking up in the middle of the night and having to take my albuterol before I can get back to sleep. That to me is a sign that somebody's asthma is not very well controlled. And so we really want to separate that from what we would consider more routine use of albuterol. So in that situation, you want to start talking to your patients about their asthma control. What are they doing? Why is their asthma control worse? Have they been adhering to their long-term asthma controller medications because we have other inhalers, things like uh, inhaled corticosteroids or combination inhalers with inhaled corticosteroids and bronchodilators that can be really effective as far as controlling a patient's asthma and minimizing their need to use albuterol in the first place. And that's a really important conversation to have. You also want to talk about asthma as a lifestyle. You know, this is a chronic disease. It's not something that's just going to go away. So if you're finding that a patient is using albuterol a lot more than they had been previously. Maybe you want to talk to them about ways in which their current lifestyle has led to worse asthma control. If they are now living with a smoker, if they now brought home a pet and maybe they're allergic and now they're wheezing all the time, you know, you want to, we want to figure out what are the factors that have led to this deterioration of their asthma control in the first place and why they're using so much more albuterol. Yeah, um, you know, and I just want to emphasize again, I've heard you say this, and you know, for anybody listening, if you if you have concerns that you don't think your asthma is well controlled, please reach out to your personal doctor or consider an evaluation from a, a board certified allergist, immunologist, mm -hmm. or even a pulmonologist. because uh, as Dr. Kawash is explaining here, we can take a deep dive and really help understand, you know, why it is that you're not 
um, achieving the control that you need. Uh, and there's multiple different ways of doing it. We're not just going to necessarily throw a bunch of medication at you. Uh, there's lifestyle uh, things that to consider, your environment, all kinds of different topics to cover. So please contact your own personal physician if you have concerns. But, you know, what about the over-the-counter quick relief inhaler for asthma that's called Primatine Mist? So for those who, you know, just go to the pharmacy to find their own relief, we, we actually had Dr. Jim Lee as a guest to discuss mm -hmm. this way back on episode two of our podcast. <laughs> I can't believe it was several years ago, uh, but yeah. obviously it's worth revisiting now. So what are some important take-home points surrounding Primatine Mist that our listeners need to be aware of? So Primatine Mist is an, it's a, basically inhaled epinephrine, right? So it's a, it's a non-selective beta agonist. So the nice thing about albuterol, yeah, it kicks up your sympathetic nervous system. It opens up your airways, but it should be a lot less selective for other, epine uh, other I should say, sympathetic receptors of your body that are outside of your lungs. So it's less likely to speed up your heart rate, less likely to increase your blood pressure. The thing about epinephrine is that it, it is non-selective. It's not like albuterol. So it's going to act on your lungs, but it could also affect your heart. It could also affect your blood vessels and other parts of your body where the sympathetic nervous system is involved without getting too graphic about that. But, you know, uh, primatine mist, is, it's over the counter. Yeah. So it's easily accessible. Maybe in an emergency situation, we can imagine where that might be a better option if it's available than absolutely nothing at all. I think those situations are very, very few and far between. I've never actually recommended that my patient, I don't know about you, but I've never actually recommended a patient to be using over the counter primatine mist. And I hope we're never in a situation where the shortage of albuterol or other shorter acting um, agonist inhalers, it, it gets to, it gets us to a point where we're telling people to use primatine mist with any regularity. Yeah, and I appreciate you discussing that. And for anybody who's interested, we'll put a, put a link on the website to um, uh, uh, some information on the Academy's website regarding this, because when this first came over the counter, there was some there was um, similar concern that was expressed from our organization and allergists as well. So it's important for mm -hmm. anybody to read that. Well, what about um, something called leave albuterol and whether, uh, you know, is that an option for somebody who can't find or use albuterol for some reason? What is that? Levalbuterol is very similar to albuterol. It's almost like it's the, a there's one more step in the manufacturing process of albuterol that you uh, that you have to take to get to levalbuterol. Essentially, and without getting too much into the organic chemistry of it, hmm. levalbuterol is just one of the enantiomers or one of the types of molecules of albuterol that can be separated out. And there was an argument from the manufacturers at the time that this was even more selective for that beta-2 agonist than albuterol. So it's less likely even than albuterol to make you jittery and um, make you uh, cause other problems that uh, the activation of the symp sympathetic nervous system can cause. So I think of it as like, if you think of primatine mist as a Walkman, you, you know what Walkman are, right? You know, mm -hmm. probably not something you've thought about in a long time where, <laughs> yeah, uh, a little bit before my time, I'll say. But if primatine mist is like a Walkman, albuterol and leave albuterol are like two generations of the original iPod. And yeah, they're both a much better product than the primatine mist. Between themselves, there's not a whole lot of differences. Um, maybe one is a little bit better than the other, although some studies show that they're basically equivalent of each other. But they're both far in a league way above what primatine mist is. And why would you walk around listening to music on a Walkman today? when you don't have to, when you have so many other options. So leave albuterol and albuterol, that's, they're the iPods of our current time. 
maybe someday we'll have something even better that's like the equivalent of an iPhone, but we're not quite there yet. So we have albuterol and leave albuterol that both do a pretty good job at opening up the airways without creating other systemic side effects. And what would you say is the equivalent of the disc man? Ooh, man. <laughs> That's a good, I'm not entirely sure that you're right. There was a step in between the, uh, the Walkman and the, and the iPod, the disc man, which is how I grew up listening to music, but I don't know. Well, what was that? What would you say is the equivalent of the disc man? I don't know. That's a good, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to put you on the spot there, but you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll just a uh, brief aside. Um, our 10 year old daughter found one of our old first generation iPods and she mm-hmm. loves it. I mean, she has an iPad and yet she loves this, this little tiny thing that's obsolete, but anyway. Yeah. All right. It's so clicking sound, you know, that clicking sound is, it's just, there's something calming about it. <laughs> um, let's move on and talk about another type of therapy that we can consider for asthma uh, called smart therapy. Can you describe mm-hmm. what smart therapy is? And is this a reasonable replacement for albuterol in some patients? Yeah, maybe smart therapy is the iPhone now that I think of it. But mm. smart therapy, it's a combination of an inhaled steroid with a slightly longer acting beta agonist or a slightly longer acting bronchodilator medication. So it's two medications in one inhaler. And the bronchodilator medication lasts in your system longer than albuterol does. It doesn't last a full 24 hours, but it lasts more than just two hours like albuterol does. And it also contains this steroid medication too. So it has that benefit of an anti-inflammatory effect inside the lung. And newer guidelines from um, the asthma world in the last several years have pointed us towards the use of smart therapy for not just um, as a reliever medication also. So that medication that I mentioned before, this budesonide for motorol or mometasone for motorol with the steroid and the uh, slightly longer acting bronchodilator was initially designed as a controller or something that you use on a regular basis twice a day to control your asthma symptoms in the long run. But we have now shifted our thinking to think of it as both a controller and potentially a reliever medication because it does have the benefit of if you use it when you are symptomatic, it can provide relief of symptoms also. So smart therapy is essentially symptom-driven dosing of that particular class of medications, the inhaled corticosteroid combined with formoterol. And it's um, it's thought of now as, in some guidelines, basically the equivalent or if not the slightly superior option for reliever medication over the beta-2 agonists like albuterol and levalbuterol. That's great. And so you've, you've really done a nice job describing multiple alternatives uh, for, for those who rely on albuterol through a nebulizer. Um, so those are multiple different options people can consider from a medication standpoint. And you recently gave two presentations at the Academy's annual meeting uh, surrounding the benefits of exercise and asthma. And as I mentioned before, you're, you're a co-author in the workgroup report as well. Mm-hmm. Can you offer some thoughts on some non-medicine therapies that can help people with asthma? Absolutely. So exercise is a big one. And that was the focus of one of my talks at the Academy meeting. And I know that you're going to be having my one of my co-authors on the work group report, uh, Charmili Nienheis, on the podcast later on to talk about our findings there with regards to exercise counseling in asthma. But uh, also, I'll quickly make the point here that, you know, over the long term, physical activity can really benefit somebody with asthma in terms of reducing their need for rescue medication, as well as in some cases, even their controller medication. So while a lot of people might think that, oh, physical activity is going to make my asthma worse because strenuous activity can provoke asthma symptoms, 
we know that moderate physical activity will over the long term reduce an asthma patient's need for uh, the use of uh, asthma medications and actually protect them from having to use as many pharmaceuticals. So that's that, that's an area I could probably spend an entire, you know, several episodes talking about with you, but uh, I'll spare your audience that. Uh, physical activity is one of them that I often talk about. Other things, avoidance of triggers. So, um, you know, don't smoke, don't vape. Try not to be exposed to things like secondhand smoke as much as possible. If you have known allergens, try to limit your exposure to them or be treated. Seek the, the input of a board-certified allergist, immunologist about those cases. Deep breathing exercises can also be helpful if we're talking about just lifestyle-based treatments. So not necessarily moderate physical activity even, but just things like yoga or other sort of stationary deep breathing exercises that can open up the airways too. And over the long run, those have been shown to lead to also less of a need for pharmaceutical intervention. So there are a lot of different things from a lifestyle standpoint that can lead somebody to better asthma control in the long term, and therefore help us stabilize that need for uh, medications like albuterol and potentially save us in situations like this where albuterol is on a shortage. Mm. No, I think that's a great, great input in regards to just the lifestyle approach to asthma as well. So we have medications, obviously, but that's, it's not where things need to, you know, stop there in regards to treatment. And overall, as I hear you, um, you know, answer these questions and and describe what's going on with the current shortage in albuterol, uh, it's a, you're providing a very reassuring message, uh, hopefully for the general public and patients out there. And there are multiple options to consider. So what advice are you giving your own patients with asthma surrounding this shortage? First advice is don't panic. And this is still very early. The shortage is more, um, the shortage in terms of its effect on my patients is not yet manifest. And what do I mean by that? I mean, right now, there are things being done to try and alleviate that shortage systematically. So hopefully, we will spare our patients the need to have them very, very concerned about an acute shortage right now. But of course, I'm not denying that there is a shortage to them. I'm telling them, yeah, this is what's going on. And a lot of the things that I've just talked about with you are things that I'm counseling them about in terms of ways to control their asthma so that they're less dependent on their albuterol. I want them to be able to have their albuterol at home. I want them to have it in case of a situation where they need that rescue medication. But I am talking to them about alternatives, including leave albuterol, including more smart therapy-based inhalers for relief of, um, or smart therapy-based Uh, protocol, I should say, for relief of asthma symptoms. And also just lifestyle counseling, as I try to always do with my patients in terms of getting their asthma better controlled so that they're not needing their albuterol inhaler in the future. But the main thing right now is that I don't think anybody needs to be completely in a panic about never being able to access their albuterol or trying to make a run for the albuterol at the pharmacy uh, because it's going to be gone in a couple months. I I don't think we're going to hit that scenario. No, I agree 100%. And I think that um, you've been very reassuring um, to, to folks listening right now. And as we wrap up our conversation, if it's okay with you, I'd like to ask some more personal questions. We'd like to get to know our guests a little bit better. Would that be all right? Yeah, no problem. All right. So you, you've uh, been involved in something called, you, uh, you worked as a doximity clinical case fellow, which I find very interesting. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So that was my first year out of fellowship as an attending. And Basically, doximity, which probably everybody here knows what it is if you're a physician, or maybe not, but it's basically, it is a almost like a social network for physicians you need, or for healthcare professionals. You need to have an advanced healthcare degree to be a part of it. And um, they have this clinical case fellowship where 
you apply and you can essentially publish your cases on the Doximity platform for other members of the platform. And they really like it when allergists and immunologists come in because we have such great cases to share for them. Uh, and they basically give you an opportunity to, it's almost like writing a case report for a journal, but at lower stakes. And it's, it's not quite as peer reviewed, but you get to share unique cases that you've seen with a wide audience. You get to get the input of other people on the cases and you really get to share some of the more unique aspects of your specialty and the types of cases that you see with uh, this audience of physicians from all different specialties and learn from them as well. So it's a really cool opportunity. And like I said, they love it when allergists and immunologists want to join the program. I was the first one in a few years when I did it. So uh, I think that if anybody was interested in that opportunity, definitely can reach out to me or just look it up and, and look into it. Oh, that's great. Um, I also know that you are an avid runner, and as you know, I am not. Uh, so <laughs> I'd love to hear about, you know, what do you enjoy about running, and do you have any personal goals that you've set for this year? I'm still trying to convert you into maybe not an avid runner, but a, a occasional runner, and I'm not giving up on that, Dave. So, you know, <laughs> but you know, uh, I've been a a runner for a long time. I didn't really become a serious runner until I met my now wife. And I had a lot of goals around that time uh, to uh, to run a lot more and to run distance races and, and managed to, at one point, run a half marathon. Um, since then, I've been more focused on the shorter distance races and recently ran a lot of 5Ks. Actually, my fastest 5K ever, believe it or not, was at the uh, Quad AI Foundation 5K at the annual meeting a few years ago. And um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention what a success that event has become over the last several years with us trying to be uh, to recruit more runners to it. And, and it was uh, an awesome time at this year's annual meeting. My goals, I think my goal is in just focused on 5K time now. I don't think I'm trying to run any marathons or any half marathons in the near future. But if I can Got below that time that I said at that annual meeting uh, a couple of years ago, I, I think that I'd be quite pleased with that. And, you know, um, yeah, that's something I'm going to be looking at hopefully between now and next year's meeting. Okay. And I like the plug for the the foundation annual, uh, the 5k event that happens at the annual meeting. So that's great. I know there's a lot of people that, um, that participate in that. Yeah. We One had 700 of, this year. So that's fantastic. Wow. Mm -hmm. One of your interests lies in improving provider-patient communication. What is one thing that each of us as clinicians can do better in this realm starting today? I think the number one thing is to start communication with listening. And I know it's counterintuitive because you think of communication as me talking, but you have to, it, before talking, you have to know what you're going to say and you have to know what your goals of communication are. And that starts with just listening, listening and asking open-ended questions. and. I'm not perfect at that, but it's it's something that I think is a uh, of the highest priority when it comes to quality communication in healthcare. Uh, I think that's great advice. So, what what's the average duration that um, physicians allow their patients to speak before they interrupt them? Like 17 seconds or something ridiculous? Yeah, yeah. I was about to guess like 14, 15. I'm not entirely sure what exactly it is, but it's something like that. Yeah. Well, you know, I. I I think this was great. Thank you so much for coming on on the podcast to discuss this. Uh, for those who are listening and, and think that Dr. Kawash did a great job describing this, um, I'll take credit for teaching him everything I know. Uh, <laughs> for those who think he didn't do a great job, clearly he's picked up some bad habits since he graduated from our program. But <laughs> no, I, I really thank you so much. This is great. And it was very insightful. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap things up? 
Thank you, Dave. Um, yeah, there's one other thing I want to add, which is that we talk, we've spent a lot of time talking about the albuterol shortage in this podcast episode, and I'm not an expert on healthcare economics and, you know, maybe you are and, and you just never, that's one thing you never taught me, <laughs> but, um, we have to recognize that there are shortages happening in a lot of different areas. So this is a reality that we have to adjust to. I mean, we didn't talk about shortages because it's beyond our specialty, shortages of ADHD medications, which are now often discussed in, in the healthcare space, particularly in pediatrics, uh, or even shortages of like things like test tubes. I get emails sometimes saying that, hey, slow down your orders of blood draws because there's a shortage of test tubes. We can adapt to this new reality. It's going to take some skill and some creativity, but we have to be aware that shortages are probably not going away uh, for a whole lot of reasons that maybe we don't have time to cover. But, you know, we have to be able to recognize that this is what's going on. Things are going to take time to sort themselves out and just be mindful of it and be willing and flexible to adapt to this reality in terms of the way that we practice. So just something I wanted to say. And I thank you so much for bringing me on the show. No, it's our pleasure. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.